I was just going to open up by saying, are there any questions based on the discussion this morning before we move on? Yes. I think um, there were, seemed to be two uh, eightfold paths, one for the mundane and one for the uh, super mundane. Mm-hmm. And is it possible for uh, beings who are not stream enter or higher to practice the super mundane path? We could work toward it. I mean, stream entry is the point where the super mundane path comes together. But how is it going to come together unless you work on the factors? Well, I would assume if you're not stream enter, you have to work on the mundane path factors. Well, you work on the mundane, but you also work on the Four Noble Truths, you work on transcendent right resolve, and on down the line. Thank you. Maybe it comes up next, but action, there's three kinds of action. Mm-hmm. Why is there a factor right speech and one right action? I mean, they all come under virtue. But it, I mean, it's so much easier to engage in wrong speech than a wrong action. All you have to do is open your mouth and think of anything that comes into your mind. <laughs> so it's a tactical reason. I think it's tactical, yeah, to find out the fact that, okay, there are precepts that deal with speech. And <clears throat> it, you know, working with your external speech is a specific issue for when you're going to be working with your internal speech when you start doing meditation. There's a very direct correlation. You tend to engage in unskillful speech externally, then you're going to tend, when you start talking to yourself, it's going to be pretty unskillful too. And that has a direct correlation there. But it's interesting that right speech comes before right action, because it is, it's kind of the instantaneous part of your practice. We're talking all the time. I mean, the amount of time that you're actually killing or stealing or engaging in illicit sex is much less than the time you're engaged in wrong speech, for most of us. I think that's why he divided it up. There was someone who asked, then I go over that last five minutes in the ultimate right view, um, a little bit more detail. So, on page six, Here's an example. The story where Ananda Vindika is going to see the different wanderers. And each of them expounds his view. But it starts out very interesting. They say, tell us, householder, what views Gautamada Contemplative has. Here, Ananda Vindika is a stream enderer. And then he says, I don't know entirely what views the Blessed One has. Interesting. As someone who's attained right view himself, he says, I really don't know what the Buddha's views are. Because after all, there comes a point where the Buddha has to put his views aside. So what's, what's, what's left? There's something more going on. And he says, what about the, the monks? I don't even know entirely what views the monks have. <laughs> so about you. Okay, I'll tell you my views, but first I want to hear yours. And so they go through their views, go through their views. The cosmos is eternal, the cosmos is not eternal. Finite, infinite, the soul is the same thing as the body. The soul is one thing, the body is another. After death, a target exists, doesn't exist, both does and doesn't exist, neither does nor doesn't exist. And so he goes through all their views and he says, this, this view arises either through your own, your own inappropriate attention or dependence on the words of another. 
that this view has been brought into being is fabricated will dependently co-arisen. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is constant is stressful, and this venerable one thus adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. So he's looking at the activity of holding to a view. He's not going to engage the, as to whether the cosmos is eternal or not. He says, just look at the act of holding to that view. Where does that lead you? And it leads you to stress. And it doesn't lead to the end of suffering, so you don't, it's not worth holding on to. And so they say, okay, what about your view? He says, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful, whatever is stressful is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. And so they, they try to catch him in his words. They say, so how, how stole it? Whatever is brought into being is fabricated, will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant, whatever is inconstant is stressful. Thus you adhere to that very stress, submit yourself to that very stress. And his response is, whatever has been brought into being, fabricated, is fabricated, willed, dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful. Whatever is stressful is not me, not what I am, not my own self. In other words, it's not worth holding on to. Having seen this well with right discernment as it has come to be, I also discern the higher escape from it as it has come to be. So, looking at the activity of holding on to a view, even when you apply it to right view, there comes a point where you can see there's an escape from right view. There's a point where you go beyond, where that too becomes something that you have to let go. Now in the beginning, right view is part of the path, it has to be developed. But once it's fully developed, then it contains the seeds for its own transcendence in this way, because it's taught you to look at the activity of holding to a view, to see what are the results of it, how this view, what, what comes about as a result. And then there's a the stock phrase, the wanderers fell silent, abashed, sitting with their head, shoulders drooping, their heads down, brooding, at a loss for words. <laughs> and so he leaves them. He tells the Buddha what, he, what happened. He says, well done, householder, well done. That is how you should periodically and righteously refute those foolish men. <laughs> okay, that's one of, the, one of the statements of this kind of ultimate level of right view. The next one is... I think this passage was referred to earlier, the one to Kajayana. This world is supported by and takes as its object of polarity, that of existence and non-existence. But one sees the origination of the world, and that means he's talking about what gives rise to experience at the senses. That's the meaning of the world there. With right discernment, as it has come to be, non-existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. In other words, as you're looking, for this pro looking at this process of origination, the whole idea that this doesn't exist, that idea does not occur to you. It just doesn't get into the mind. When you see the cessation of the world, with right discernment, as it has come to be, existence, the thought of existence with reference to the world, does not occur to one. So you're not concerned with the existence or non-existence of the world out there. You're just watching the process of things arising at the senses. And, what, and when it calls, it's not just arising, it's origination. Origination, and this is an important distinction, origination means seeing not only that things arise, but also they arise because of a, of a particular cause. So you're not just watching things coming and going, but you want to think, when this comes, what came along with it? When this goes, what went with it? And the only way you can see that clearly is if you start messing with it. It's like any scientific experiment. If you just sit and watch a rabbit breathing, you can't figure out much about what's, you know, what's causing the rabbit to breathe at that rate. We start changing things, like you put the rabbit through a lot of cold or a lot of heat, 
you begin to see, okay, with, when it gets colder, the rabbit breathes at a different rate, then you realize the temperature has an effect there. If you place a picture of a beautiful woman in the cage with a rabbit, it has no effect. <laughs> but you know this only because you've been messing with a rabbit. In the same way, you only understand your mind when you mess with it, <laughs> i.e., you try to put it into a state of concentration, try to develop skillful qualities, and then you see what actually has an effect and what doesn't have an effect. So this is what origination means here. We're not just sitting passively with things, watching things coming and going. We try to see, if I change this, is there a change? If I change that, is there a change in the effect? And that way you begin to get a, sense, a closer, clearer and clearer sense of what's actually causing the problem. But when you get the mind into this state, where you're not even thinking of existence or non-existence of the world outside, you focus simply on the phenomenon of your experience, that's when you're ready for this next stage here. This world is in bondage, he says, to attachments, clings, and biases. But one such as this does not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clingings, fixations of awareness, biases, or obsessions. Nor is he resolved on myself. He has no uncertainty or doubt that mere stress when arising is arising, stress when passing away is passing away. Okay, this is when all the truths collapse into one, i.e. there's stress arising and passing away. That's it. Which means you have only one duty at that point which is to comprehend it until you develop dispassion, and it goes. And it just stops, it ceases on its own. In this, your knowledge is independent of others, and it's to this extent, Kachayana, he says, that there is right view. So this is the ultimate right view, ultimate in the sense of right view on the verge of awakening. And then when you can drop that, then you can enter, enter the deathless. So those are two statements in the readings we had that deal with ultimate right view. Were there any further questions on that? Yes, Balaji. Uh, so Ajahn, uh, this passage of, uh, where the Buddha is talking to Kachayana like this, he's talking about uh, uh, not thinking in terms of existence and non-existence, um, but as it so happens, and I think I'm, you're also very aware, that uh, often... Uh, the 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 statement sabbe uh, dhamma anatta is often translated by many other translators as uh, something like uh, there is no self in what whatever is created or the uncreated. I've seen this kind of translation somewhere, and it definitely doesn't seem to fit with this. It seems like. Uh, uh, the Buddha is completely refuting both the sides of uh, looking at uh, existence as well as non-existence. Both both these views, he's he's definitely uh, setting them aside. Them aside. So, um, but then uh, often the argument in favor of that kind of translation that I hear is uh, the Dhamma Niyama Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about. Uh, whether the Tathagata arises or not arises. Mm -hmm. So could you kind of um, help understand and correlate? Okay, well again, with, when the application of the three perceptions depends on where you are in the practice. And so in that particular case, like, I mean, there was a case where someone asked one of the new monks, you know, what's the result of action? And the retina monk says, all reaction results in, all action results in stress. And this other wanderer says, no, I never heard any Buddhist monk say that. 
you better go check back and check with the Buddha. So he goes back and checks with the Buddha. And the Buddha says, you know, foolish man. <laughs> when have I ever taught that? And then Udayan, and there, there, there's the good Udayan and the bad Udayan. I guess this is the bad Udayan. Pipes in and says, well, he's probably thinking of your statement, you know, that all feeling is stressful, you know. You know, all the five aggregates are stressful, therefore feeling must be, all feeling must be painful. All action results in feeling, therefore all action results in pain. And the Buddha says, foolish man. <laughs> when we're talking about karma, you talk about pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor painful feelings. So the issue is, when do you apply these teachings and to what purpose? That's not a time to bring in the three characteristics. You're talking about karma, you want to talk about good, you know, skillful karma leads to pleasure, and unskillful karma leads to pain. It's when you've mastered skillful karma, then you're ready for the Four Noble Truths, or at least have some mastery of skillful karma, you're ready for the Four Noble Truths, and then you start applying the three characteristics in another way. When you're on the verge of awakening, it is possible for you to have an experience of the deathless, which is, which is unfabricated, but you grasp at it. And that grasping is going to keep you from full awakening. And so he says, okay, all dhammas are not self. And that's when that, that's when that teaching applies. And then, then you let go of that too. So it's more of a strategic, you know, we're, we're on a path where you have to be strategic about how you apply, apply the teachings. So what did the Buddha then mean when he was saying whether the Thagata arises or not? Uh, they, uh, the fact that all uh, dhammas are, are not self mm-hmm. is a, uh, what did he say, uh, th- this, 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 this regularity in the dhamma is always mm-hmm. true? Is okay, like, when he's talking about the regularity of the dhamma, that's on the verge of awakening. That's when you see the regularity of the dharma, is on the verge of awakening. Oh, I see. Okay, so says, once you see the regularity of the dharma, then the next step is experience of nirvana. I see. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that opening to nirvana is always open, whether you have a tathagata. This means if you pri- this is how private Buddhists gain awakening. And how disciples, after the Buddha passes away, can gain awakening. That possibility is always there. Thank you. Okay, lots of questions. Okay. You said that the Four Noble Truths collapsed sort of into the one, and then you had a second sentence that I couldn't hear. Something about the duty? or Yeah, because you remember the Four Noble Truths, each of the four has a different duty. But when you have only one truth, there's only one duty. And this is the point where you just develop dispassion. So the duty is to develop dispassion? For whatever arises as stress. Because you see, everything that arises, whether it's good, skillful or unskillful, it's going to be stressful. It's okay, that's, then, then you, for the, what you do there is you develop dispassion toward it. Okay. The statement that all dhammas are not self, mm-hmm. um, I understood that in the context of the for establishments to refer to phenomena. That, okay. that all phenomena are not self. Mm-hmm. Does this uh, anatta also apply to the dharma with a big D, so to speak? Well, I mean, the, the truth is always going to be there. But what you've got is the issue, because it's in, in contrast to you know, all 
fabrications are inconstant, all fabrications are stressful. And you would think, arguing from that, the next state would be all fabrications are not self. Which would be what Dhamma is in the, in the Siddhipatthanas. But you've got it in this context where you're talking about Sankara, Sankara, and then Dhamma. And there it would mean both fabricated and unfabricated. Which is why you have to apply that at that last point. Yeah, that uh, came up before and you answered it part, partially in uh, that quotation, that three-part quotation that I've mm-hmm. learned sometimes. Said, oh, wow, that's absolute. I can really cling to that. But then in the book, you list, there's this like verse of like ten statements and it says, all dhammas are stressful, all dhammas are this, all dhammas are suffering. Mm-hmm. And then in a footnote, you explain that, well, there's not this consistency, there's this mm-hmm. different... Uh, well, what you didn't point out in the footnote there is that the strategies, the appropriateness for one or the mm-hmm. other. So if you're talking about dhammas, you know, the, the, the deathless as a dhamma, because that's what it is for someone who's on the verge of awakening. You know, we, what something, something comes up and you tend to see, okay, this is an object of my awareness. And then so you've got the awareness and you've got the object. But when you... And so as long as you treat it as an object of awareness, you've got to see it as not self, because otherwise they'll be clinging. But there comes a point where you say, okay, this, I abandon the, uh, the whole idea of having an object there at all. This is why the, the, the awareness of awakened one is called consciousness without surface. Because it's not putting up a surface to anything else. And at that point, you don't, you, you, then you say, okay, there's no dhammas left, because there are no objects of consciousness. So that's the, the paradox that Sometimes it's said at path moment, nibbana becomes the object, mm-hmm. but that's that's just a metaphor. It's not right because at, at, yeah. at, at the path moment, but then to get into it, you have to you can't regard, regard it as an object anymore. Okay, I don't understand, but I'm not no, supposed yeah, to. But, but no, you, 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 it's, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what I'm hearing in. Um, your discussion now is that it's very skillful to understand some ideas about strategizing within the three realms Mm -hmm. of this understanding Mm -hmm. and to know, say, where maybe my strengths and weaknesses lie Mm -hmm. and what situation I'm going into. If I'm meditating at home, maybe explore some of these, more of the Four Noble Truths or ultimate Mm -hmm. in that protected setting. If I'm going out into San Francisco somewhere, I might want to drop back to it's see... Like good old skillful and unskillful karma. Right. Mm-hmm. So that I know what would be most feasible. Right. And so you're suggesting know where you are at any time and what yeah. would be mm-hmm. appropriate so you're not confusing mm-hmm. the issues. Because you've got different duties depending on the different levels of right view. And if you're going to go to the ultimate level right away, you're missing a lot of the work that has to be done. So you're likely not even going to be using that strategy most skillfully. It will be confused with something else that you haven't even looked at Mm -hmm. at a basic level. So you really want to get some grounding at the basic level, I've got this. And then Four Noble Truths, do I really have this? And then testing out those ideas. Mm -hmm. Am I sure about this? And then... Kind of. I mean, it's. I mean, you're going to be doing a mixture of the views on karma and the views on the four noble truths. You start getting into argument with the people at the people at the hospital. 
You say, okay, I'm really upset because I'm clinging to this. Maybe I better let go. Four Noble Truths. And that eventually, when we have these groundings in first and second, that sort That's of opens only up. Only then will you be able, okay. ready for the last one. Okay. So, so we can see the confusion starting if we're grasping at some of these ultimate We're reacts. so Western about this. So I'm going to go straight to the top. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so be wise about building your pyramid. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. There's a mic over here. So is dispassion synonymous with equanimity? No. And okay, could you could you okay. say how they equanimity is just being be, being equal about whatever arises. Um, dispassion, it comes in a series of that's there's disenchantment, dispassion, cessation. Disenchantment is. But in getting back to that feeding metaphor that we, you weren't here this morning to hear about, but how we tend to feed off of things. And it turns out the reason we feed off of things is that we see that we feed off of this, so we create more of the food. We fashion our experience so it is edible. But then when we begin to realize, gee, I mean, this, is, this is just like that cartoon, the far side cartoon, where this cow is with another group of other cows out in the meadow, and one of them pulls up her head and she says, wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass. <laughs> so when you realize that what you've been eating on is not worth it, then you stop fixing it, right? And it's the reason that we f- fabricate our food is because there's a passion for that food. So once we lose our passion for the food, we stop fabricating, and that allows things to cease. So that's a different process than just being equanimous. Dispassion is when you say, I've had enough of not only eating this, but of fixing this food. Are we ready for right resolve? Okay. Okay, as with right view, there are mundane right resolve and noble right resolve. Mundane right resolve is basically being resolved on renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. Noble right resolve is defined in terms, and you can look at it on your own later, in that passage from Majjhima 117, but essentially it's talking about getting the mind into the first jhana. Okay, there's still an element of resolve in there because you're working on getting the mind to settle down. And so that, that's, the, that's the noble version. Let's go through the different um, mundane versions first, though. Resolve on renunciation. Um, this is the most difficult of the three to actually get resolved on. We can see that you know, ill will is a bad thing and harmfulness is a good thing. But when you get to sensuality, hey. Um, but the Buddha wants you to see that this fascination we have with looking for our pleasure and thinking about sensualities as the Buddha says here, the passion for your resolves is your sensuality. In other words, you like to think about nice smells, nice sounds, tastes, t- sights, tactile sensations, and you can just go over and over and over. Uh, I'd like it like this. No, I'd like it like that. No, I'd like it like this. And you can just spend all your time getting sucked into that. But as the Buddhist noted in Majjhima 19, which I don't have here, when your mind gets 
starts dealing with those things, then your actions tend to follow through. You have an inclination to start looking for things. What's, where's the central hit I can get out of that? Where's the central hit I can get out of this? And that becomes the tendency of the mind. And when you can begin to see, okay, there are drawbacks there. You know, that your, your defilements have made fool, a fool of you many times in the past, and if you've all these through it, they're going to make a fool of you again. Maybe it's time to get out of that. So where do you attack the problem? You have to start looking back in this fascination we have with thinking about what would be a nice sound, what would be a nice taste, what would be a nice sight. And we can think and think and think about that. That's what you've got to learn how to renounce. You can resolve and say, I want to get beyond that. And as the Buddha said, you know, the, the way to get beyond that is to give the mind an alternative pleasure. This is why right resolve shades into right concentration, because that's, that's where your resolves are headed. Non-ill will basically is trying to develop goodwill or equanimity, as the case may be. Harmlessness is basically associated with compassion. Now, the difference between goodwill and compassion is goodwill is ge a general wish for happiness for yourself and all other beings when you turn it into a Brahma Vihara. Compassion is when you see somebody suffering and rather than saying, boy, they're down, now I can really get them. <laughs> That's harmfulness. You say, no, I feel sorry for this person, maybe there's some way I can help. Um, if you see someone doing something unskillful, you should have compassion for that person too. So how does right view inform right resolve? In terms of renunciation, Remember, right view is, has to do with this action will have this kind of result. Skillful actions will have unskillful. Skillful actions will have good results. Unskillful actions will have bad results. Look at the pleasures that you are indulging in. What kind of mind states do they lead you to? If a certain pleasure leads to unskillful qualities in the mind, that is a pleasure that you've got to drop. If it doesn't have that bad effect, it's okay. So notice, it's, you're looking at pleasure not in terms of how much you like that particular pleasure, but what is this going to do to my mind? And from there, what, is it, what kind of actions is it going to lead to? So it's not the case that all pleasures are bad. But you have to look at the pleasure in the context of karma to decide which ones are actually leading to unskillful states and which ones are not. In terms of developing goodwill and compassion, Again, the teachings on karma will inform how you do this. Um, to begin with, you have to realize that the development of a state of goodwill itself is a kind of karma. It's something you have to do. The Buddha never ever said that our minds are naturally good, or are innately, that goodwill is an innate quality of the mind. You can just as easily feel goodwill as you can feel ill will. I mean, both come really easily to the mind. If something were an innate quality, it would be impervious to outside conditions. Regardless of what the outside conditions were, you would be, you know, always wishing goodwill to all beings. Now, is there anyone here in the room that was born like that? <laughs> okay, we can agree that it's not an innate quality of the mind. What it is, is we have these potentials for goodwill. We also have the potentials for ill will. To work on goodwill to make it a Brahma Vihara, i.e., a unlimited an unlimited state, you have to be determined. In other words, you have to make up your mind, this is what I want. You have to resolve yourself on this. 
and you have to fabricate it using those three kinds of fabrication, bodily, verbal, and mental, that we discussed this morning. And once you've developed it, you have to make it an object of mindfulness. This is something you keep in mind. This is all mentioned in the Karananiya Metta Sutta. It's, you have to be resolved on this mindfulness. So looking at the state of goodwill itself, you realize that this is something I have to fabricate, this is something I have to develop. This, is both an ab- uh, this functions both as a kind of right resolve and also as a topic for right concentration. In terms of the contact, what does it mean to wish for happiness? You have to view your wish for happiness in, in line with karma. In other words, if you're wishing that all beings be happy, you're wishing basically, as I said earlier this morning, may all beings understand the causes for happiness and act on them, because that's the only way they're going to find happiness. So wishing that everybody behaves skillfully. So that's one perspective that right view gives on the practice of good. Uh, right view gives on the practice of goodwill. Secondly, you have to remember the complexity of karma. That each person has lots and lots of karma seeds from the past. You know, there's that statement that says, if you want to see a person's past actions, you look at their present condition. If you want to see their future condition, you look at their present actions. That's wrong. You can't see the entirety of a person's past actions just by looking at their present condition. I mean, that statement just now, it's kind of assuming that we all have one karma account, and what we see right now is the running balance. But in the Buddha's image, you've got a field full of many seeds, some of which are sprouting, some of which could potentially sprout. Which means that if you see somebody suffering right now, that doesn't mean that they deserve to suffer. Maybe they have some good seeds in their background, and if you can help them, that can actually nourish the good seeds and bring them to sprout. Which is why compassion for someone who is suffering actually makes sense. Nobody's determined that, okay, you've got X amount of suffering right now, and you have to suffer all the way through that before you can reap you know, the results of good karma. Maybe there's some good karma that can be brought in. And so if, you're, if you're someone that's close to you is suffering, you try to look for those potentials of good karma in that person so you can help that person to develop those potentials. Right view also reminds you of why you're doing this to begin with. And it basically your motivation to do this is not because beings deserve your goodwill or deserve your compassion, either that they're one with you or innately good, but it's because you need to protect your own motivation when you're interacting with these people. In other words, in order to be skillful in your interaction with other people, you have to have goodwill toward them. This is protection for yourself. So it's not because they deserve or don't deserve your goodwill, it's because you need the goodwill in order to make sure that you can begin to trust your motivations when you're acting with people, especially people who are difficult. So this is what right view reminds you of. And finally it reminds you that the Brahmaviharas are not prayers. We're not saying, may all beings be happy and hope that, bing, and they're all going to be happy. Remember, you're just setting up your motivation for dealing with them. Those are some of the lessons that right view gives to right resolve, both in terms of renunciation and in terms of developing goodwill and compassion. Now the lessons that right resolve teaches, the general lesson is that as you move from mundane right resolve to noble right resolve, 
you begin to appreciate the value of stillness of mind. This refers to when the Buddha is talking about, you start out with the desire, I'm going to, going to keep all my unskillful mind states under control. And the images he gives of, of a cowherd when the rice is ripening. Um, you have to think back in those days, and the major, court, major source of court cases back in those days was the fact that some people were keeping cows and other people were growing rice. And as the rice was beginning to ripen, the cows would get into the rice fields. And was it, was it Rice Davids, the, the Pali scholar? He used to be a uh, British colonial administrator in Ceylon, and that was what he was doing all the time, was dealing with farmers who were complaining about people who had cows getting into the fields. Um, no wonder he was driven to study Pali. <laughs> it's driving him crazy. So the cowherd's duty at that point is to make sure the cows don't get into the rice fields, no matter what. And so he said, you take your stick and you poke them and you beat them and you make sure they don't get into the rice field. So in the same way you realize, I've got some unskillful thoughts in here, I've got to poke them and beat them and make sure they don't wander off where they don't belong. And then there are other thoughts you realize, okay, these thoughts, when I think them, don't lead to any harm. Thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, thoughts of harmlessness. He said, that's like the cow herd after the rice has been gathered. That's when the cows can wander anywhere they want. And the cowherd can rest under the tree, and all I have to remember, okay, there are cows out there, I've got to bring them back in sometime, but right now all I can rest. So you have a little bit of awareness about where your thoughts are leading, but otherwise you can trust this thought, it's not going to take you anywhere wrong. But, he says, you begin to realize that if you think these thoughts 24 hours, it's going to wear the mind down. This is when the mind gets inclined to see, maybe it would be good to get the mind still and in concentration. So this is how mundane right resolve leads to noble right resolve. That's one of the general lessons. And then specifically, when you're working on renunciation and working on developing goodwill and compassion, in terms of renunciation, the big issue, of course, is going to be your attraction to somebody else's body. That's the thing that people tend to fantasize more than anything else about. And so this is why they have body contemplation as one of the tools to counteract that. And as you engage in contemplating the body, trying to see its unattractive side, you begin to realize that one, it gives you an insight into the nature of sensual craving and clinging. But also then you begin to see what perceptions do to the mind. I mean, you look at, you look at the body in one way, and you can see it as attractive. You imagine another way, and you begin to say, oh, this is really not attractive at all. And then the mind goes back, oh, yeah, it really is attractive. And it goes back, and then it's not attractive. And you go back and forth like this. And you begin to realize, okay, when I hold the perception of attraction, what does that do to the mind? When I hold the perception of not unattractive, what does that do to the mind? And when I switch, why did I switch? And you learn one of the, a really important lesson about the mind is that oftentimes lust has nothing to do with what's out there. It has everything to do with what you want at that moment. And you feel lust and you go out and you look for something to feel, to feel lustful about. The same with anger, the same with well, with delusion, but the same with anger and lust are the main ones. So it's not that just we're reacting to outside stimuli, but we're out there looking for trouble. And, the, and working with body contemplation teaches you this lesson of the extent to which you fabricate things. I mean, this is why we have hate radio. Your radio doesn't turn on all by its own to that channel. You have to decide, I want to get, some, I want to get angry about something this morning. So you turn on, who is it nowadays? Is Rush Limbaugh still on? Yep. He is still on. 
And there are two reasons you might want to listen to Rush Limbaugh. You either get angry with him or get angry at him. <laughs> but the initial impulse to turn that on, okay, it shows that you, you, don't need, you don't have any specific thing that you're angry about. We want to find something to get angry about. This is also why we have online shopping. I want to find something to get greedy about. <laughs> Just go in and have what they call shopping therapy, which I don't understand. But, but it's, you begin to see, okay, the, the reason the trouble is not with the object out there, it's with the mind kind of flowing out and looking for trouble. And this is one of the lessons you learn from actively trying to block your perceptions of attractiveness. There's a part of the mind that keeps wanting to see things as attractive, not whether, and regardless of whether they really are attractive or not. It's, I want something to lust over, I want something to be greedy about, I want something to be angry about. And the practice of right resolve helps you see that more clearly in the, in the case of practicing for renunciation. In terms of developing goodwill and compassion, one of the lessons you're going to learn is that you, you would begin to see the need for equanimity in cases where beings cannot be helped. In other words, there come times when there, there are times when your goodwill and compassion is going to make you suffer unless you can develop some equanimity. There are the people you want to help, there are people that you want to see happy, but they're just not going to do what's required. And you realize you can't force them. But there are other people who would like to take your help, or for some reason they have some karmic issue where it just doesn't come through. And that's, those are times when you need to develop equanimity. And so then you begin to get important lessons. Okay, to what extent is trying to help other people going to be useful? At one point you have to develop equanimity. That's something you can learn only through experience. So the, you know, the practice of trying to develop right resolve in these areas will teach you these lessons, which then augment your, the discernment of your right view, bring it into, make it turn into the discernment of that comes from development as opposed to simply discernment that comes from reading about things. Any questions? Okay. So, um, then these perceptions of, I want something to lust over, mm. be greedy, those are then related to clinging and pleasure within the loops? And at what point do those, does the pleasure fuel those perceptions within the field? Okay, well, they, if you get some pleasure from that, then you're just going to go back and feed on it again, and feed on it again. So it's, you're looking for the pleasure, right. and that pleasure you're finding outside rather than internally. That's part of the problem. The other thing is, many times you're ignoring the pain that your greed, aversion, and, and, and lust are causing you. Because you're so determined, I want to be greedy about something, I don't care about the stress involved. So it's the um, push... Mm-hmm. of that clinging and craving that overpowers any negative feelings that yeah. are coming alongside of it. Mm-hmm. Makes you decide that they don't matter. Question back here. I'd be grateful if you would review again ideas about karma because I'm realizing I'm not understanding sometimes the way um, karma is being used. So thank you. Okay. okay, karma has... The word karma basically has two meanings. One is your intentional actions, and two is the results of those actions. The, the, can, the canon goes kind of back and forth between these two meanings. And so if you've got 
actions you did in the past, which kind of like create seeds that are going to lead to future pleasure or future pain. And sometimes those seeds, I mean, the, the reason they give this analogy is some, some seeds take a long time before they sprout, other, others will sprout immediately. You, know, you spit into the wind, you don't have to wait till the next lifetime before they come back at you. <laughs> other times, you know, like you plant a seed in a field, it's, it may, you, know, you don't get the plant right away. It may take a while. And so uh, with every intention, you're planting a seed in your field. So how many seeds did you plant this today? I mean, already a lot, just for this one day. And then you think about, you know, up to this point in time since you were born, and then previous lifetimes, you have some seeds left over from there, and lifetimes before that. And so we've all got these seeds kind of in our field. And the Buddha said that you experience these results in combination with your present karma. And it's your present karma that kind of focuses on different potentials you have in your field. And this is why karma is so complex, because you, have, you ha- do have that freedom right now to choose where you're going to focus and what kind of encouragement you're going to give. Now, for many of us, we kind of abandon, abdicate our freedom by just kind of going on automatic pilot. You know, the ways we look for pleasure in the past, we're just going to look for pleasure again and again and again. And one of the reasons the, the Buddhist has you focus on the issue of the stress that comes from this is that you don't, you're not willing to abandon your ways of doing things unless you say, this is causing me a lot of trouble. Maybe I should learn another way of doing things, of thinking about things, of you know, all the fabrications, or even just breathing. Who, you know, how many of us thought that just by changing the way you breathe, you're going to change your state of mind? It doesn't usually occur to us. But when you say, okay, there's something wrong with the way I'm engaging with the world, let me start looking at different ways of doing this. And then you begin to realize, I have some choices in the present moment that I haven't been taking advantage of. And life would be a lot easier for me, it would be a lot easier for the people around me if I learned to be more skillful in that. That too is a kind of karma. And the Buddha is actually focusing our attention on what is your present karma, so how do you make the most of regardless of what your past karma is. Because he said, if we had to wait for us to, in, or, in order to gain awakening, if we had to wait to the point where we were done with all our past bad karma, we'd never gain awakening. So it's not like he says, I will help, I will help, I'll show you how not to suffer unless you deserve to suffer. He said, deserved or not, I'm going to show you how to stop suffering. So this is part of your freedom in the present moment. I don't have to suffer from these things if I learn the proper skills. So that's, that's what I mean by karma. Okay. Okay. Yes? No. At lunch I saw the pie. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to have the pie, but there was sense desire. Mm-hmm. I had the pie. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, afterwards, I didn't feel compelled to have more pie. Mm-hmm. I'm not obsessing about pie now. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about it, not for <laughs> You want to justify your pie. So I, I could have renounced it. You could have renounced it, but it, it sounds like it wasn't all that bad. It was, it doesn't feel like it affected me. So mm-hmm. in, it, what you said earlier about you don't have to renounce something just because it's pleasurable, just no. on general principles. Right. You have to look at it. When I indulge in this pleasure, what's the long-term effect? Mm-hmm. Now, if you had pie every day, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a rare thing for you. It's a rare thing, okay. 
But you know, if you had pi every day, then you'd be getting into trouble. So that would yeah. be kind of thing. I kind of, I've got to watch out my for my inclination to have more pi. But there's some things, you know, like you know, lusting after your neighbor's wife. <laughs> okay, so long-term bad effect. I'm better stay away from that one. So, Ajahn, uh, uh, since you talked about uh, the fact that uh, uh, how to use a body contemplation to work on uh, lust. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, is, this passage is also saying uh, these are not sensuality, these are just the strings of sensuality. Yeah. Uh, so, in other words, the body contemplation should be directed towards one's own body first? You start with your own body. But the purpose of that is to be, is to be fair. Okay. You're, you're so you do saying, want to do it even to the other fantasy body as well. Right. Mm -hmm. But remember, that the strings of sensuality are actually you know, the, the, the pleasures that come in through the senses. But the reason you're doing this contemplation is because you begin to realize, okay, the problem is not with that body out there. The problem is with my perceptions all the fantasies and memories and other things that are built up around the perception of a beautiful body. So the focus should be more on the perception of, right. of uh, just normal body than on attractive. Well, uh, the, the, the perception of attractive is really, really strong, and if you don't counteract it with something equally strong, Okay, so unattractive, really yeah. disgusting. So that's that has hey, to be I mean, it's not hard. You just you know don't flush your toilet for several days. Right, yeah. right, mm -hmm. that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by the local water company. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I heard you say you first want something and then or or want to avoid something, and then it, it manifests out there. But it can be the other way around too, right? It can be the other way around. Yeah, something comes in. But if you're primed to see, you know, to, to be on the lookout for any possible pleasurable things, and then one comes up, boom, you grab for it. Mm. So there's something in the mind that's already primed to go right for it. And if it's not primed, and you won't. If it's not primed, it just go right past you. One of the monks at the monastery told me that for a while he liked going down to the, the airport to pick me up when I was coming back. And he found the reason he liked doing that was because he could look at all the beautiful women. Yeah. He said, this is not healthy from, for a monk. Okay? And so he said, how about if I go looking for the signs of aging? And he realized that they were everywhere. All throughout the crowd in the airport. And he hadn't seen them before because he wasn't looking for them. So you know, if the mind is saying, I'm, I need some pleasure, I need some pleasure, it may, may, not, may not be a conscious thought, but there may be a subconscious thing, I'm going to look for this, I'm going to look for that. And then as soon as you see it, bang, you go right for it. So say somebody cuts in front of you, mm -hmm. and if you're driving, if you're not primed for it, it won't bother you. Right. Mm -hmm. However, if there's something, this habitual you're pattern, or right. mm -hmm. it'll... If it's an initial pattern to feel that, okay, these people are doing this just to, you know, because they want to spite me, they want to get in my way, I'm late for work, I'm, you know, that, that, then you're already going to you know, you know, pull out the gun and have a freeway shooting. <laughs> in your mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
But I mean, there is that that kind of romantic view, which is that you know we're basically good and, and pure, and it's only because of our social conditioning that we get you know unskillful in our in our intentions. I mean, if we didn't have the potential for these unskillful things, no amount of social conditioning would do it for us. It's because we're already, you know, we have such good practice over these many, many aeons of looking for pleasure and trying to avoid pain and getting angry and getting lustful and getting greedy, that you know, once we've encountered these things in our environment, we go. I mean, you can see this in children. You, know, they, you, you can have children right, you know, growing up in the same family, basically, but they perceive their parents very differently. My older brother lived in mortal fear of my father. I found my father very kind. And so it was, you know, he was the same person. But it was, you know, there was a karmic background. It was very different. On that question on your father, uh, kindness. Uh, as I understand, kindness is not uh, resolve. Uh, goodwill is what you try translate for, for as metta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, kindness, what is that exactly? Okay, in Pali, they actually have a word for kindness, which is anukampa. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's actually one of the qualities you should develop, both for the good of the other people around you and for your own good. So, is that, is that a re- resolve? Is that a... What kind of quality? It, should, it? Be the, it should be the result of your goodwill. I see. It's just that you know, the, by doing, by having goodwill for others, you sometimes you may see the, feel the kindest thing to do is to go separate ways. Okay. It's when we start putting loving kindness in, that's when it starts getting sticky. I see. Mm-hmm. So, what, what what about loving kindness is particularly, uh, say, uh, unskillful? Uh, I mean, it's, or where can it get? Unskillful? Once you get in, once you start thinking about loving people, then the Buddha says they're automatically they're, they're, it gets tied to hating other people because mm-hmm. there are going to be people who treat the people you love well, and you're going to love them too, and there are going to be people who mistreat the people you love, and you're not going to like them. You know? And so the Buddha says, love is not a reliable emotion that you can make unlimited. Goodwill is something you can make unlimited. It's a question. You mentioned the karmic differences between, say, you and your brother. And without going into, I don't want to go into personal things, but can you elaborate just enough on that so that I could understand? Is that due to current life circumstances or prior life circumstances? It could be both. I mean, for one, my older brother was—he was the first, their first experiment in a child. And I think my father may have learned a few lessons about, oh, I shouldn't have been quite so harsh <laughs> on the kids. So the next kid comes along and be more gentle. But also just m- my brother's perception of the world and my perception of the world from the very beginning were very different. He was always seeing danger everywhere. So it may have come from some from his experience in the back in his past. I got a little confused about what you said about uh, loving. Um, so metta is loving kindness. Is there that loving has a? Well, this, is, this is why I translate metta as goodwill. Oh, I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Do you see a difference between love and compassion? Very definitely, yeah. Because you can have compassion for people you don't love. Compassion is when you see somebody suffering or someone who is doing something that's, that will lead to suffering. And you feel sorry for them and you think, is there some way I can stop this? And you don't necessarily have to like the person. Especially if they're doing things that are really unskillful, you probably not like them. But you say, look, for that person's own good, I should try to help them if I can. Okay, let's move on to right speech and right action. <clears throat> okay, right speech is refraining from lying, refraining from divisive tail-bearing, refraining from coarse speech, and refraining from idle chatter. Right action is refraining from killing, refraining from stealing. And then there are two versions of the third, third factor, well, either refraining from all sex or refraining from illicit sex. Now illicit sex is defined as, one, if you're married, having sex with anybody aside from your partner. Um, or if you're a common law marriage, again, anyone beside your partner. Or if you're engaged, having sex with anyone inside from your partner. Um, if you're not married or engaged, okay, that means having sex with a minor, having sex with someone who has taken a vow of celibacy. Those are all forms of illicit sex. And, and with all these things, though, as you take them as precepts, then you would take them on as a promise. I'm not going to do these things under any circumstances. And it's this absolute quality that makes that gives power to the practice. There's a passage where, they said, where it says, if you will, do not kill, steal, or have illicit sex under any circumstances, if you don't lie or speak divisively, etc., under any circumstances, okay, you are giving protection to everybody. And if you're giving protection to everybody, you're going to get a share of that universal protection yourself. In other words, the karma consequences will come back to you, or not, there's nothing out there. If you're selective in who you kill and don't kill, um, <laughs> it's not very universal. <laughs> and I mean, I think everybody's selective in one way or another. I mean, there's nobody out killing everybody. Um, but what gives, the, what gives this practice the power is that you apply it universally. Um, and as the Buddha says in the passage here, Page 8, toward the beginning. When you've been called to a town meeting, group meeting, gathering of your relatives, your guild, or of the royalty, in other words, you go to court. If you're asked as a witness, come and tell a good man what you know. If you don't know, you say, I don't know. If you do know, you say, I know. If you haven't seen, you say, I haven't seen. If you have seen, you say, I have seen. Thus you don't consciously tell a lie for your own sake, for the sake of another, or for the sake of a reward. And then there's the positive side. In abandoning false speech, you abstain from all speech, you speak the truth, you hold to the truth, you're firm, reliable, no deceiver of the world. Okay, that's, that's a pretty, pretty absolute statement there. That for no reason would you misrepresent the truth. Now, in, in the precepts for the monks, it becomes very clear that the question of whether you actually deceive somebody else or not is not the issue. It's the question of whether you misrepresent the truth. You consciously misrepresent the truth. And that gives you a little bit of wiggle room. In other words, there's sometimes when you're asked a question and you're afraid, okay, the person who asks me this question is going to misuse the information. You don't want to give the information. 
So you have to figure out, and this is how the this is how the precept helps develop your discernment. How do you figure out a way not to misrepresent the truth, but then not divulge the information? Now in Thailand, there's a cultural understanding that if you ask a question and someone doesn't answer at all, they just remain silent. They have the right to do that, which is very different from our society. You know, I, I because I have asked you a question, I have the right to get an answer out of you. It's a it's a peculiar idea. When you stop and think about it. And we have a constitutional protection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of daily life, the constitution gets thrown out the window, you know. I mean, I want to know how I look in this dress, you know, that, that when somebody when someone asks you that question, you know, and if you don't respond, if you just remain silent, they get insulted and slap you or something. Right? Regardless of your constitutional right not to incriminate yourself. <laughs> Which means you have to think on your feet. But that's, I'm, getting, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Um, but the precepts are meant to be maintained as an absolute across the board. Now when you bring right view to the... Uh, let's go on to the other ones. Um, divisive tail-bearing. This is sometimes translated as slander, but that's not the case. Slander is basically lying about somebody. With divisive tail-bearing, you're actually telling the truth about them, but it's something to make that person look bad, because you don't want the person you're talking to to like that other person. You're trying to either prevent a friendship or try to break it up. Now, fortunately, there's no precept against this, which means that there are times when you say, okay, this person, if they get involved with that person, it's going to be bad for this person, in which case you might want to give some information. So there is, there, there is that allowance. If it's for this person's protection, you can say something bad about the other person. But that's the extenuating circumstance. The general principle is you don't speak to break up a friendship. Harsh speech is th things that are said simply to hurt the other person's feelings. Which means that there are times when sometimes harsh speech is necessary. And the Buddha himself would say unpleasant things. You know, there's a time when he called David Data a lickspittle, which is one of those great words that's fallen out of use. <laughs> you know what it means, don't you? A lickspittle? If somebody else spits on the ground, you lick it up. Ah. <laughs> In other words, I mean, he, basically he says, you know, something that no one else would take, you take it on. You know? And so that was to, one, to warn Devadatta that he was going off on the wrong course, and also to warn the people around that Devadatta was going on the wrong course, because Devadatta was trying to build up a following. So there are some times when harsh speech is necessary. So fortunately, there's no precept against it. But here again, you have to look at your motivation. Why am I saying this? And then finally, with idle chatter, that's when you speak basically with no, no clear intention in mind at all. You just open your mouth and let whatever's in there come out. Now there's some idle chatter, i.e. kind of social grease, that's needed to keep the office going and keep the family going. But as with all grease, you have to make sure you don't put on too much grease. So you have, in other words, it's not really idle chatter because you do have an intention. You're trying to create a good atmosphere. But idle chatter is the kind that leads easily to the other kinds. Now what all this means, of course, is in, the, in terms of your humor, you have to be really careful about the jokes you tell. You think about most jokes, either they are exaggeration, i.e. lying, 
or they are divisive tail-bearing, i.e. racist jokes or sexist jokes or other jokes of that sort. Coarse speech, you know, foul jokes. Idle chatter, just total silliness. You say, I've got to find some other way to be funny. And there are. There are other ways to be funny. You think about Mark Twain, you think about Will Rogers. I mean, the great humorists were great humorists because they told the truth. It's just they pointed out how you know ironic the truth actually is. And that's what makes them memorable. So what is, how does right view apply to right speech and right action? One thing right view teaches you is to understand in terms of karma what it means to harm yourself and what it means to harm others. There's a passage where the Buddha basically says, you harm yourself by breaking the precepts. You harm others by getting them to break the precepts. Because you remember, you're, taking them, you're treating them not simply as the object of your actions, but you're treating them as independent agents. And if you get them to break the precepts, then you're harming them. Because they're going to be doing things that will lead to their harm and suffering down the, down the line. And by observing the precepts, you're actually protecting you, not only them, but also yourself. That's one important lesson. Secondly, the, 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 there comes a point where you have to realize that you are creating an identity around your virtue. And that identity is going to be problematic down the line. Now, that doesn't mean you stop observing the precepts, but you mean you, it learns, you learn how to be virtuous, but then not identify yourself as a better person because you're observing the precepts. You know, you don't exalt yourself, I'm, I'm a better person than that person because that person lies or steals or cheats. Because you're not doing this to make yourself better than them. You're making yourself, trying to make yourself better than what you were before. And that's an important, important distinction. So these are some of the understandings that are brought to the practice of right speech and right action. Now then there's the discernment that's gained from them. And as I pointed out earlier, that when you take on the precepts as, as an absolute, you have to exercise your discernment. I, I was read by one Mahayana person saying that, okay, Mahayana has the discernment of knowing when not to observe the precepts. And that's not the kind of discernment the Buddha is talking about here. It's actually a much more stringent exercise of your discernment to figure out how do I keep to the precepts and yet not cause harm? But that, well, that was the one about lying as a is a prime example. You're a German, Nazis at the door, you've got Jews in the attic, the Nazis come knocking at the door. What do you say? Now, if you've got Jews in your attic, you've got to, you've got to think this through. You know, talking about thinking about you know, what are you going to say to your boss before you? If you've got Jews in the attic, you've got to think this through. And, um, so you, they come to the door, they want to know if you have Jews in the attic. You can either say, check the house if you want. I'm not saying anything shameful here. You don't have to say, yeah, I've got Jews in the attic. You change what you're saying a little bit. And the reason you do this is because, one, there are Nazis and they're Nazis. Um, there are the Nazis who don't really want to check your house. It's late Friday afternoon, they want to knock off. And they would just be as happy as anything not to have, a, have an excuse not to check the house. So you give them an excuse, but you don't lie. You don't misrepresent the truth. If it turns out that they're the other kind of Nazis, they're going to check your house regardless of what you say. They find the Jews. If they say, hey, you lied to us, they're going to take you down. If they start torturing you, they're going to use that against you. You, know, you think you're, you're a moral person, you lied to us on such a simple thing like this. But if you didn't lie, they can't use that against you. So you're protecting yourself. So 
you don't have to tell them, you know, I've got Jews up there. But at the same time, you don't have to misrepresent the truth. So if there's anything that you, you know that you've got something you want to keep secret from people who are going to abuse that, you've got to use your discernment on how to avoid divulging the information. The same with killing animals. How do you build your house so you don't get pests? So you don't have to deal with the problem later on of having to kill the pests. This forces you to think. One time I'm down at the, the group I lead in Laguna Beach, we, we spent the whole evening talking about dealing with ants. And someone complained, this is an awfully, awfully profound discussion we're having here, talking about not killing ants. And he said, look, if you can't figure out the problem of ants, there's no way you're going to figure out the problem of not-self. Okay? You've got to start with little things like this. And you say, they're okay, they're, you have to use ant psychology. What do ants not like? And it turns out there are lots of things. They don't like peppermint oil. They don't like talcum powder. They don't like any scented kind of powder. They don't like cinnamon. They don't like cayenne pepper. You figure out where the ants are coming in, you block them. You don't have to kill them. So that's one of the ways in which following these the, the requirements of right speech and right action develop your discernment. At the same time, when you're taking these on as precepts, they require you the, kindness, the, the qualities that are needed for mindfulness practice. One is mindfulness itself, i.e. the ability to keep your precept in mind. Alertness, the ability to watch your actions to see whether the actions are going against the precept or not. And then finally, ardency, the desire to do this really well. And as you develop these qualities through following the precepts, then they translate over into your, your meditation. In particular, with the issue of right speech, there's a place where the Buddha says there are basically three questions you ask yourself before you're going to say something. Is it true? Is it beneficial? And is this the right time and place? And only if you pass those three, three tests is it something that should be said. Well, the same thing should apply to speech in your own mind. These things your mind is telling you, are they true? Are they beneficial? Is this the right time and place to be thinking about this? This is going to be a good lesson to apply when you're practicing meditation. Finally, you see, as you practice the precepts, you get more and more sensitive to your actions, more and more sensitive to the, the results. It also creates a quality of honesty in the mind, that you get more and more honest about, yeah, I have been creating this trouble, but I'm not going to do it anymore. And as the Buddha said, when concentration is based on that quality of virtue, that's the kind of concentration that will lead to discernment. Now, virtue is not necessary for concentration, but for concentration to be fruitful to lead discernment, it does need virtue. Because otherwise, if you're dishonest with yourself about your actions and their consequences, the concentration you develop will lead to dishonest discernment. So this is a quality that's required for, for the practice. And the practice you get in non-fashioning, i.e. not creating a sense of identity around the precepts, this will get really helpful when you start developing um, right concentration. You know, there's that quality where the Buddha says, a person of non-integrity says, I've got this jhana and these other people don't have this jhana. Because that's going to get in the way of any real progress in your, in your concentration practice. Any questions on right speech or right action? Yes. 
I have a hard time uh, getting around um, the issue of discernment. If I lie and save someone's life, I myself don't see anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Raise the bar a little bit and say, I can still save somebody's life without lying. Look for that. Because you never really know if you're going to save that person's life. But I have to take that chance. Okay, that's your choice, but you've, you've, you know, you've, you've broken your precept there. Yes. And you've missed that opportunity to develop your discernment even further. Maybe I'm willing to take that chance. Mm-hmm. That's your choice. Uh, I seem to recall there's a sutta that um, sort of says that the results of karma are relative. If you're someone who has a boatload of good karma and you kill an ant, it probably won't affect you too much. Whereas if you have a warehouse full of bad karma and you just turned human after being a ghost and animal for millions of lives, it'll knock you right back down if you kill an ant. It's not in the polycanon. No. <laughs> I'll have to check my sources. Then. Yeah, okay. I mean, there is a place, where the Buddha said, depending on the quality of your mind now, karma coming in from the past will have a different effect. He says, if your mind is, you know, if you're developing the Brahma Viharas, if you're able to not be overcome by pleasure, not be overcome by pain, you're developed in your virtue, you're developed in your discernment, then it's like putting a salt, a lump of salt into a large river. You can still drink the water. It's, this is all about present karma. If your mind is narrow and you don't have all those other virtues, that same action would be like putting a lump of salt into a cup of water. You can't drink it. So, and, but the thing is, that about that other one, you don't know if you have a boatload of karma or just a warehouse, a boatload of bad karma or a warehouse full of good karma, you've always got to go on the assumption that I can't be careless. Because nobody has a karma meter. To me. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Is there a Buddhist perspective on swearing? If you know how to do it. (laughs) In other words, you're extremely selective. You don't do it all the time. Because if you start doing it all the time, people tune it out. But if someone who normally doesn't swear gets to the point where they say, this is the skillful thing to do right now, that has a much greater effect. I mean, I was with a teacher who could say really harsh things, but he'd say them in a very calm voice and use ordinary language. But it goes right between my ribs. If you'd been swearing at me or yelling at me, it wouldn't have hurt so much. So you have to figure out, okay, what would be the most effective way of getting to this person? Mm-hmm. There are some famous cases in Thailand. There's a one woman who came to visit a monk I knew one time, and she was talking about, my defilements are so thin right now, they could just probably just, you know, drop off. 
And he called her a term, which he translated literally in English. It doesn't sound bad at all. He called her a golden flower. The thing is, when you call a woman a golden flower in Thailand, golden flowers, dok tong. Actually, it's a, it's a flower that has lots and lots of stamens. And at any one time, you see lots of bees on it. So it's a, it's a symbol for mani- a nymphomaniac. <laughs> And so he called her that, and she got furious. She left. And two years later she came back, she said, thank you. So that's a case of someone who knows how to swear. Yeah. Well, it would need to pass a test of true, beneficial, and right time and place, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless. Yeah. Even swearing. Even swearing, yeah. People don't usually. People swearing usually doesn't pass any test at all. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this passage about uh, uh, no deceiver of the world. Sorry, this phrase. Uh, mm-hmm. How far should we take that? Uh, how how strict should one is one expected to be I mean it sounds like there is as you said there is no precept uh, against uh, did you you say that there is no precept against deceiving or Or, something not giving the entire information not giving the entire information Mm -hmm. but uh, but no deceiver of the world is not does not fall under not giving entire information no and when deceiving something is when you're actually giving them misinformation. That's 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 from kind of the perspective that the, the monks rules at least. Yeah. I see. And uh, uh, this uh, see, speaks in season. Speaks. What word is speaks in season? It means you speak at the right time in the right place. Okay. There are certain things that can be said in one group of people that you can't say in another group of people. Um, and again, when is this information useful for people? When is it not? Uh, John Lee had a great passage. He said, you speak dharma that is too high for people. That's actually a form of idle chatter. Right. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, one question on uh, uh, abstaining from killing. Mm-hmm. Um, and since you talked about killing, uh, not killing ants, uh, I had a situation where uh, the, there were too many spiders in in our bedroom, and uh, my partner and I decided that we'll kind of try to trap the spider in a mm-hmm. in a kind of a small uh, glass or something, and then try and take it to the uh, porch and let it go free. And so we tried to get the largest possible cup. Uh, so that because these spiders were sometimes pretty big, mm-hmm. and they had long legs, and uh, one of the worries that we had is we didn't want to uh, chase the spider and um, you know put the put the, put the cup on it at, at at a speed that we would probably trap its leg or maybe you know harm its leg or something. That's so we wanted to be as careful as is possible, and yet despite all we tried. Uh, the I think the mother spider or whatever uh, she had her 
a leg really, you know, busted mm -hmm. in our attempt. They have seven legs. Oh, <laughs> 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 well, what we what we did is we put put her on the let, let her on the porch anyway, and then uh, we noticed that eventually a bird came and picked her up. Mm -hmm. So we were wondering. Um, uh, so do you karma. have any thoughts on that? I mean, of course, no, we have to say equanimity. There's a spider's karma that the bird came. Right. I mean, you didn't, you didn't tell the bird, you know, come by at 3.45 and we've got spiders out here. <laughs> 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 so that you have to chalk that up to karma. Okay. Yeah. So to that ex that's to the extent to which we can actually have our goodwill right. for the spiders. Right. And, okay. Thank you. I mean, living in Asia, that, that happened an awful lot. I, I know this one guy who was a monk in Burma who was, all these bugs were coming, all these moths were coming into his hut one night. So he very carefully caught them in a glass jar. And they took them out, and he let them out, and just as soon as he let them out, this lizard came out and <laughs> got the moth. So that's, you know, that's the moth's karma. Question? What about something like termites that are really very destructive of property? Uh, and they are so hidden, you can't really do anything other than exterminate. Sit down and meditate. <laughs> and talk to the queen termite. And say, there's lots of other trees out there, lots of other places where the termites can eat the wood and they're gray. And you, you, know, you can have your area and I'll have my area. And I can't guarantee that this will work, but I've seen cases where it actually has. So at least give that a try. Yes. So I had a question. What are your thoughts about people who, for health reasons, cannot be vegan because that would be killing? But nonetheless, it also okay. has a non-harm. The precept has to do with one, killing yourself, or two, giving the order to kill. That's as far as the precept goes. So, you know, for monks, if something has been killed specifically to feed them, they can't eat it. Eat it. But if it, you know, it's meat that's for sale in the market, that's not considering breaking the precept. Now, if you decide you want to go a little bit further, say, I don't want to even encourage killing by buying meat at all, that's your choice. But there are a lot of people, for health reasons, cannot be vegan, cannot be vegetarian. And you know, for the monks, it's simply a case of, we have to take whatever is given to us with that proviso. Um, for lay people, that's up, if you want to go beyond the precept, and say, okay, I just don't want to condone this, even indirectly by paying for meat. That's your choice. But as far as the precept goes, it's simply recurrence to, one, you, did, you killed the animal yourself, or two, you tell somebody to kill the animal, or three, you praise the killing of animals. This is why when there was an argument back a while back about whether Buddhism should have a theory of just war, and, you know, condoning it is as bad as breaking the precept directly yourself. And two, you know, if you're telling other people that, you know, it would be okay for them or it would be morally honorable for them to go out and join the war, you're, you're, you're harming them. So this is why Buddhism has always stayed away from that issue. Okay, let's do right livelihood and then we'll break. Okay. Right livelihood. Okay, there are two kinds of right livelihood, or two descriptions. One is where the Buddha actually lists occupations that you should avoid as a lay person. And there are two ways of it, there are two criteria. One is just a list. Don't 
sell human beings, don't sell meat, don't sell poison, don't sell alcohol, don't sell weapons. And try to stay away from that kind of commerce. The second condition is that if your livelihood depends on either giving rise to anger in yourself or greed, aversion, and passion, greed, passion, passion, aversion, and delusion in other people, then you should avoid that livelihood. This is why you don't see Theravada monks palling around with movie stars. Because a, a lot of acting has to do with giving rise to passion, giving rise to aversion, giving rise to delusion. But that's, that's one of the classic cases in the canon, where this actor comes and says, I've been told that if you act and entertain people, then when you die you go to the, hell, excuse me, you go to the heaven of laughter. And what does the Buddha have to say about this? And now notice his, his, his etiquette around this. He says, don't ask me that question. Person asks a second time, don't ask me that question. The person asks a third time, the person says, okay, if you're that insistent, I'll tell you. If, you're, if in, in the course of acting your purpose is to give rise to passion, aversion, and delusion in your audience, you will go to the hell of laughter, which is different from the heaven of laughter. In the heaven of laughter, everyone is laughing along with you. In the hell of laughter, everybody's laughing at you. <laughs> so you have to look at what kind of qualities of mind does your does your occupation give rise to? And if it gives rise to the wrong qualities of mind, it would be best to get out. So there are two qualities here. One, two criteria. One is, does the does the does it actually cause harm? I mean, you're selling poison, you're selling alcohol, you're enabling people to break the precepts. You're selling weapons, you're selling human beings. The beings are being mistreated. You're selling meat. Animals had to die. You get out of those professions. And then the second was, what qualities of mind is your profession developing? There was a list of what the Buddha calls a right livelihood for monks, which is basically, it's called not scheming, not belittling, not seeking gain with gain, not hinting. In other words, the wrong ways of trying to get donations out of people. Not scheming, not hinting, not belittling, not pursuing gain with gain. Schemes, hmm? pursuing gain with gain, and I'll explain that. Scheming, of course, is how can I get this, you know, this out of that person? Hinting is saying, gee, I really could use... You know. Belittling, you wonder how belittling will get, get a gift out of somebody. says, I don't think it's, you're, you've got enough money to, you know, to give this. And pursuing gain with gain is okay. Anybody who gives a donation of X to our monastery gets an amulet. <laughs> Those are wrong livelihood for monks. So, so they have different different criteria. There is a passage I read, probably in the Vasudhi Bhagavad, this long list of things, including medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a doctor, just selling herbs, selling fortune telling. There's, there's a lo- huge long list. It's in the Dikanagaya 1 and 2. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's just more specific? That's for monks. For monks. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Then they have to go to lay doctors when they right. mm-hmm. get medicine. Now, this is one of the ironies that in Thailand, a lot, it used to be a lot of monks were doctors. There's a fair amount of wrong livelihood among monks in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka. And the forest tradition, the monks got criticized for not being doctors. They say, why didn't you learn medicine so you can help us? 
So the discernment that's gained from the practice of right livelihood is on the one hand, it creates that state of mind where there's lack of remorse and lack of denial. Because if, if your livelihood depends on harming somebody, you're going to deny that that harm is happening. Or you're going to, going to deny that the person matters. One way or the other. Okay? You're creating walls of ignorance in the mind through the denial. And secondly, it, just focusing on the issue of trying to make your livelihood right gives you insight into the fact that you really are feeding off the world all the time. We don't tend to think about you know, the imprint that we have on the world, but the more you think about it, the more you realize, I've got to be really careful about how I feed, because I am having an impact on others. This is why the monks have the reflection every night on food, clothing, shelter, and medicine, to remind them, okay, you're born into this world with a big gaping hole, i.e. your mouth, and there's a constant need to keep filling it up, but it never gets full. Because it's got a hole at the other end. But it just keeps coming in, coming in, and you cannot survive without feeding on things. So it's supposed to give you, give you a motivation to say, well, it might probably be best to get out of this feeding system entirely, if possible. Also, it gives you a sense of the fact that you're born into debt. Now, so many of us, are in this, especially in our society now, seem to be born into the world with a sense of entitlement. But from the Buddha's point of view, we're all in debt to other beings for the fact that we live, in fact, we survive. And so this is another motivation for practice. What can I do to repay those debts? Because it it's only the arahant who can live in the world without debt. So that's some of the discernment that's gained from the practice of right livelihood. Okay, we'll break right now. We'll meet back in another half hour. <laughs>